0: Russia is fake news. Uh, Don Jr. was collusion curious. That email is disturbing. I have a son who's a great young man. He's a fine person.
1: Donald Trump Jr. is a liar. Most
0: people would have taken that meeting. It's called opposition research. This is a hostile foreign power offering to intervene to help elect some of the president of the United States. If Russia
2: or anybody else is trying to interfere with our elections. I think it's a horrible thing, and I want to get to the bottom of it. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind.
1: And I'm Heather Cox Richardson.
2: She's a noted historian with a unique view of the Trump administration.
1: And he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist with decades of experience reporting in Washington.
2: And this is the Politics and History podcast that asks, what is happening? And has it happened before? Hi, Heather. Hey, Ron. Oh, my. Oh, my. This week, Donald Trump Jr.'s emails. It sounds like a movie musical, doesn't it? Subject line, Russia-Clinton-Private and Confidential. The offer, a meeting between the Trump campaign and a Russian lawyer. A promise of dirt on Hillary Clinton. This all happened in June of last year. The email said the offer was, quote, part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump, end quote. Could it be any clearer? Heather, what is your take on this moment?
1: My first take, I think, is wow. But I think the real takeaway for me to start today's podcast is to say this is not normal. People who are shaking their heads and saying, oh, come on, this is what people do in campaigns, and this is nothing that unusual, and we haven't gotten to any odd place in American history. In fact, that's not true. This is a moment that we have never seen before, and it's not okay. That's not to say it's irrecoverable and that America can't respond to this, but it is important to remember that this is not the way the American government is supposed to operate, and we have to grapple with that as we move forward.
2: Look, I'm not going to put uh, uh, Russia in with al-Qaeda. But let me just offer one little nugget here.
0: Inevitable in some people's mind that just before the election in the United States, there would be some kind of a message
2: from Osama bin Laden. And in fact, there has been. In the 2004 campaign with John Kerry and George W. Bush, bin Laden sent out a video right before the election that clearly advantaged George W. Bush.
0: There will be people in the country who undoubtedly believe this comes at a moment to favor Mr. Bush and that it is bad for Mr. Kerry. Many people have said it's bad for Mr. Kerry because Muslim extremists want to have Mr. Bush. Others will say that Mr. Bush will remind people that it's important to have him at the helm.
2: People were affronted. Why would he hand Bush a gift like that? That's what they said in CIA. This is as though the Bush campaign went to bin Laden and said, please produce a video that's going to help us, or even better, Bin Laden called up Bush, through intermediaries, and said, we're going to do you a big favor. Well, look, we have a terrific guest today, Adam Liptak. He's the legal correspondent for the New York Times, terrific, longstanding correspondent. Welcome, Adam. Great to be here. Adam, this story has unraveled quickly in these last few days. Can you bring us up to speed on what Donald Trump Jr. did?
0: What he did, and it was only through the incredible reporting of my colleagues, Joe Becker, Matt Apuzo, and Adam Goldman, that this came to light, and they forced him finally to come clean after all kinds of evasions over months in the last few days, is to admit to taking a meeting with a lawyer linked to and said to be representing the Russian government who was, he thought, prepared to provide him with compromising material on Hillary Clinton, and he took that meeting cheerfully and in the hope that he would get this material, and even recently was saying that he was unhappy about the fact that he says it didn't come through, that this was a pretext for talking about something else. So this was, at the least, attempted collusion. Well, if there was no collusion, it wasn't for want of trying on the part of his son, who invited uh, the campaign chairman. Manafort, and uh, his brother-in-law, Jared Kushner. So these were not fringe characters. This is a blood relative, a son-in-law, campaign chairman, sitting down with someone they understood to be representing the Russian government. And some people's impulse on hearing such an offer might be to call the FBI. These people's impulse was, let's see what we can find out.
2: Of course, let's be clear that this is happening Uh, One floor below a fabled and widely known place, the office of Donald Trump. I mean, it's in Trump Tower. Adam, Democratic Senator from Virginia, Tim Kaine, who is running mate, is using the T-word here. We're now beyond obstruction of justice in terms of what's being
0: investigated. This is moving into perjury, false statements, uh, and even into potentially treason. My own view is that's getting ahead of ourselves it's not unusual for campaigns to try to get disparaging material about their adversaries. It does strike me as unusual to turn to foreign sources for that, but that's not the traditional definition of treason. Uh, I certainly don't think it would pass any kind of legal prosecutable definition of treason. Now, it's also true that impeachable offenses, uh, only two of them are named in the constitution, treason and, and bribery. So It might be if we didn't have a staunchly Republican House of Representatives, and if there were a link between these campaign figures and the president himself, that this might be the sort of thing that at least some House of Representatives hypothetically would start thinking about what is essentially a political question of does this amount to an impeachable offense?
2: Well, bribery, look, we're still early. So, um, uh, Heather, let me ask you about treason. <laughs> treason.
0: This, <president, laughs> right. this, this story you know, every 12 hours, it gets richer. So we're, we may well be in early days
2: and we get poor as a nation. And this is why the, all the, the crisis managers say, stand up early, admit you were wrong, fire Make the people responsible and get back to what you are designated to do, whether you're a CEO or the president.
1: Well, Adam had a good point there, though, about whether or not this is treason. The legal definition of treason is deliberately kept very, very small in this country. Um, What
2: examples do we have uh, that you can cite of treason?
1: Well, you know, there aren't very many, interestingly enough. And the reason for that, the last person that was convicted of treason in America came out of World War II. It was a Japanese-American citizen named Tomoya Kawakita. Well, there's a reason that it's very hard to convict somebody of treason against the federal government. It's really easy to expand the definition of treason to include political opponents, political opponents who might have gotten opposition research in ways that we do consider legitimate, or political opponents who simply don't like the current administration for one reason or another. And It was John Marshall at first in the Aaron Burr trial who pulled back on definitions of treason and said, we have to be really, really careful about this and make sure we don't expand it too far. Because if you start to do that, you start to impinge on civil liberties. And people who are now hitting really hard on the idea that this is treason and they want to see this being interpreted as treason should be remembering that you don't always want to expand the definitions of crimes against the federal government because the first things to go are civil liberties.
2: I mean, we we may not be talking about legal definitions of prosecution under treason, but we are talking about codes of conduct.
0: Right. I'm pretty sure treason, at least for now, is not the right frame. But serious people think that campaign finance laws may well have been violated here. It's a crime for a foreign national to try to influence an election, including through making contributions of anything of value, and you can ask the question of whether opposition research for which people will pay money is a thing of value. So that's another kind of way to think about it if you want to get legalistic about
2: it. Adam, uh, let's broaden this out to the rest of Trump world. In January, right before he becomes vice president, uh, Mike Pence uh, says this on CBS's Face the Nation. Just to button up one question, did any advisor or anybody in the Trump campaign have any contact with the Russians who were trying to, to meddle in the election? Oh, well, of course not. And uh, I, think, I think to suggest that uh, is to give, give credence to some of, uh, of, of, these, um, of these bizarre rumors that have swirled around the candidacy. My goodness, here we are, what, six months later, we know that Donald Trump Jr., Michael Flynn, Jeff Sessions, Jared Kushner, Carter Page, and Paul Manafort did in fact have contact with the Russians. Let's assume the worst of the worst, and that this so-called collusion is as widespread as some fear. What are the consequences that Donald Trump and his team could face, legal or not legal? Let's try to break them down. Adam,
0: well, there's two basic routes uh i think what the framers probably contemplated is that if all of what you said is true and this leads to the president and there's authentic collusion that uh the house would impeach and the senate would remove him i'm not sure they contemplated a political dynamic of the sort we have today although republicans deserted richard nixon when things got ugly enough and the second is the legal process and we do have a special prosecutor investigating obstruction of justice and collusion most legal scholars say that a sitting president cannot be indicted although there's not been a definitive ruling on that it may be that whatever the special prosecutor comes up with he has to he'll decide to refer to the house rather than to take it to court but that's a contested question about whether you can indict perhaps indict now and wait for the president to leave office before concluding the prosecution Uh, but those are the two basic routes impeachment and criminal prosecution
2: the post had a story about the state of fear, of panic inside of the White House, Trump going just berserk, attacking people. To fathom the level of tension that must ionize the air of that white building, it's, it's got to be, uh, you, could, you could pass metal filings across the table.
0: You have to ask the question, Ron, of if there was nothing there, why did Donald Trump take pains to try to persuade Comey not to pursue the Flynn piece of this? And why did he fire Comey after Comey refused? And why did he go on television and say he fired Comey because of the Russia stuff? So, I mean, it's not as though the president doesn't seem acutely aware and perhaps nervous about where this is heading.
2: Heather, Adam, let's take a listen to the Trump defense. Here's an attorney for Donald Trump. Uh, Jay Glove on CNN Tuesday night.
0: The question is the legal question. Is, is there any illegality, anything wrong with the meeting that took place here? So, so the meeting takes place. It's not illegal. What, about, what about ethical? Well, I mean, look, and you're in the middle of a campaign. So opposition research is very common. We've been covering these for a long time. Sure, but not from Russians or... Well, but, well, I mean, the, the, the fact is, you, have to, you look at the context of where this took place. This was in the middle of a campaign. A meeting is set up. It's a meeting that ends up uh, where they said they had, you know, evidently, purportedly, which ends up not being the case, of course, opposition research on Hillary Clinton. The meeting is set up. Don Jr. does the meeting. It's 20 minutes. Nothing transpires. Ends up being on, on the whole adoption issue and the, the Muginski Act. And you look at the reality of what you're then dealing with, and I go back to the same. What law has been violated here?
2: All right, Adam, you being an attorney, a lawyer, put on that legal hat of yours. Uh, Size up this defense from Trump world.
0: Well, so there's two basic themes. One is we didn't succeed in getting disparaging information, therefore no harm, no foul. I don't think that works. I think if you try to bribe a government official or a judge and they decline to take the bribe, the attempt to commit the crime is a crime itself. The second question is, is it okay to solicit opposition research from a representative of a hostile power? The campaign finance laws, on the whole, would suggest not. It turns on, you know, vague phrases like, what does a thing of value mean? But you can see a case being made uh, against um, the people who participated in that meeting if their goal was to solicit a thing of value from someone acting on behalf of the Russian government.
2: You size it up beautifully, Adam. Adam Wittak, legal correspondent for The New York Times. Thanks for joining us. Take care, guys. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. Uh, Heather, looking at Donald Trump Jr.'s emails, uh, what can history teach us?
1: You know, in the early years of America, we tend to forget that the North American continent had a number of different European nations jockeying for power. And America had to sort of carve itself a space out of all that and maintain its sovereignty. And George Washington and the president who followed him, John Adams, worked at doing that so intently that a lot of their opponents started to think that they'd forgotten about democracy, that they were too concerned about shoring up American power and not concerned enough about the people. And what happens is you get the rise of a political party really forming around people like Thomas Jefferson to say, no, 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 no. we're about democracy, we're about the people. And after the French Revolution, when the French people throw off the monarchy in 1793— in It seems to those Americans who like democracy and who really believe in the power of the people that they finally found a wedge issue to get back at the Federalists in power and to make sure that democracy really takes over in America. And what they do is they start to pressure America to maintain its alliance with France, because, of course, France helped us dramatically during the American Revolution. And instead of turning toward Britain, as the Federalists under Washington and then Adams were increasingly doing, to turn to France— This fairly minor politician from Pennsylvania, a guy named George Logan, decides to go to France and cut his own deal with France. And while he's over in France negotiating this deal... The Federalists back home say, no, no, we have to have one policy for America. We have to let Americans run their own country, and we have to have politics stop at the border. And while he's overseas, they pass what is known as the Logan Act. And what that does is it says that Americans keep our domestic politics on our continent. And whether or not what is going on right now violates the Logan Act— will certainly come up. People will talk about it. But I think importantly here that we are in territory for a political party to turn like this to another country for opposition research to swing an election is unprecedented except perhaps in the years before 1799 with the Logan Act. And when that happened, as I say, it was a Quaker from Pennsylvania who was a minor level politician. We are in waters we have never been in before.
2: But let's say something uh, here about a kind of mirror image that I just saw as you said that. you know, here we are in the early days of America, worried about these powers from Europe that, of course, were much greater than us, uh, breaching our sovereignty. Well, Think about it. We're living in an increasingly borderless world now. In which global trade is not what it used to be. I mean, American companies are, are as large as nation states. They do much of their business—70, 80 percent for some of the big companies—overseas. Uh, you're having this sort of post-ideological era in a way where it's 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 one great uh, clot of doing business, where governments and corporations and individuals are passing to and fro in ways that, frankly, I don't think they did back in the 1700s, and it. Provides an avenue for a different kind of breach of sovereignty, which in a way is what has happened here.
1: So, Ron, stuff's hitting us right and left, uh, showering down on us, and it's a little hard to even guess where things are going to go. If you put your reporter hat back on, where do you think this is going? What do you think are the unanswered questions? You know, what is still not passing the smell test here and needs to be ferreted out?
2: I would first go at this meeting. You know, I don't buy what they're saying that nothing occurred in this meeting. There was no yield of valuable information. It doesn't make sense. Lots of set up for this meeting. It's happening right in the Trump Tower during an intense period in the US electoral cycle. The idea that this Natalia Veselnitskaya would come all the way from Russia, this represented the Russian government, meet with the Trump triumvirate of Kushner, a Donald Jr. and Paul Manafort and deliver nothing, doesn't add up. There's more there.
1: I thought it was fascinating the way that President Trump responded to uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s release of those emails. It took him a long time to respond, and when he did, it was a it was a really sort of oblique. I'm proud of his transparency sort of thing.
2: Right, yes. he Donald is proud of his transparency. Donald had his, his uh, surgically removed last year. It was a tough procedure. Well, and
1: yet he, he, mainta- it, he maintained that he didn't know about the meeting.
2: Yeah, I mean, the idea – Trump maintaining that his top three aides – I mean – Including his son. His son, his his son, son, his son-in-law and his campaign manager are meeting feet. Literally, if you just use the ceiling versus the floor, feet beneath where Donald is sitting at that big office we know so well. And he knows nothing about it in the middle of the heated campaign. I mean, talk about not passing the smell test. You know, what you find is you find a great deal of information in the lies themselves. We hear the word treason, and I think Adam and you, Heather, put a fine point on it. Legally, we are not in the place of treason in terms of rule of law. But in terms of how people use that word, non-lawyers, it is one that's bubbling around, uh, and it's a word that carries uh, the most heat. The T word this week is not treason. The T word is truth. People know when truth is not being abided. No one, a lie, is being repeated, expanded. This is in a way hopeful. People know deep in their souls, truth is what matters. It's what works in any part of your life that works. It's born of truth. And it's the same for a nation.
1: You said this last week, that that people don't wake up in the morning and want to be lied to. And the face of Donald Trump Jr., insisting that there had been no meeting that he had not participated in, coming up against this set of emails, I think was a breaking point for a lot of people. And it goes back to what you said. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, please lie to me.
2: And we've talked often, I'll just say uh, in finale, about the powerful self-correcting features that have allowed this democracy to survive for more than two centuries. And at the center of them, in fact, is truth. Heather, thank you for this uh, extremely interesting week.
1: Always Uh, a pleasure.
2: We will see you next time on Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. See ya.
1: If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on
2: Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out Carry On. Visit our website at WBUR.org/slash freakout. Our email address is freakout and carry on at WBUR.org. Our
1: show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Katherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Our intern is Chris Yulian. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.